and it's blank. I think it did the same thing as those slides I put in. Okay, no worries. Well, let's just go straight to the readings in that case then. We're going to read from uh, Genesis chapter 1, first of all, and then from John chapter 1. If you need a Bible, you don't have your own, whether paper or electronic, there's a uh, down on both sides here at the front, you'll find the, the readings. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 19. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and He separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the waters under the vault from the waters above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Amen. So we turn to John's Gospel, and we're going to read John chapter 1, and read there verses 1 to 18. The so-called prologue to John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, 
The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not out not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because He was before me. Out of His fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made Him known. Amen. May God bless His Word to our understanding. Over these weeks of Advent, we've been uh, in reverse order, so to speak. We started four weeks ago by thinking about the birth of Jesus when we launched the uh, painting, the nativity painting that Ian had done, and thought about the coming of Jesus into the world and all the uh, expectations that were associated with His coming. And uh, in the weeks since then, we've, we've moved out from, from the manger, from this scrap of life in a manger, and thinking about all that uh, this little life represents, God humbling Himself to become one of us and to come into a place of, of poverty, a place of lowliness, a place that was crushed and jammed full, a place where there was barely any room for Him or His family. And then we thought about the house in all likelihood where Jesus was born and how crushed and how busy it was. And we thought about the hospitality and the community that surrounded Jesus at His birth in the inconvenience of all of the toing and froing that was required of the people of Israel at that particular time. And then last week we thought about shepherds and wise men, and we've been thinking about this journey out from the manger, remembering that when Jesus went back to heaven, when He ascended on the Mount of Olives, He said to His disciples, you will receive the gift My Father will send you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so the gospel message that Jesus said would, would would flow with the coming of the Spirit, would begin where they were and move out to Judea, the surrounding area, and Samaria, which was the foreign part close to them, and to the ends of the earth. And so the journey of the gospel is an outward journey beginning in one place and with one life. And so we've seen that there's an element of the nativity that is just like that. It began with a baby in a manger and the news spread out to the community of that household, to the people of Bethlehem, to the shepherds on the edge of Bethlehem, to the wise men who were the foreigners, in, uh, probably in Iran or Iraq. And this week we want to think about, if you like, the equivalent of the ends of the earth, 
We did that quiz earlier on, and we, we, we thought about how different cultures ha- have ended up with these peculiar little customs, <laughs> peculiar little customs that sound, some of them, frankly, ridiculous. Wrapping a dead bird in sealskin and letting it decompose is not my idea of a holiday treat. And yet, customs and cultures all around the world interpret, and they hand things down. And sometimes our focus can be so local. I imagine that there are some people with some worried faces walking up and down Buchanan Street right now, feeling the pressure of the moment, checking to see how many hours remain until the shop shut, and that's it definitively. If you haven't got it, you haven't got it. And so the pressure mounts with every passing half hour. I always think it's quite entertaining how the gender shift takes place around these days. Lots more men on the streets with that slightly harried look on their faces. (laughs) We focus at Christmas at this time on the birth, but we've gone in reverse order, and so I want to take you from the particular to the universal. And so Callum and I are going to… Callum? Even David? Where did I get Callum from? David and I are going to share that perspective. And so I'm just going to take a few minutes, and I am going to take just a few minutes to think with you about the past dimension, about the universality of Jesus coming, not just as a baby in the circumstances that we act out with tea towels and dressing gowns in a million nativity plays at Christmas, but beyond the circumstances, what is this really all about Matthew and Luke in both of their Gospels contain genealogies, lists of names which anchor Jesus' parentage through Joseph, and they're different lists of names because they take different routes through the family tree, but they're both at pains to point out that Jesus' earthly lineage and heritage traces Him back through David the one who, would, who was the, the, the messianic forebear king, if you like, the one to whom it was promised a ruler would come through his line. But then back beyond David to Abraham, to the father of the nation and the people of Israel, the one who received by faith the promise of God's salvation plan. But back beyond Abraham to Adam, And so the genealogies, not both of them, but the genealogies take different routes and take in David and Abraham and Adam. But you see, all the while they're still linking it back to human history. John's prologue is a genealogy, if you like, but of a very different kind. In the broadest sense, John's prologue is an origin story too. But John's focus is not on tracing the names that came through Joseph that connect Jesus and link him all the way back to Adam. John's focus is to connect the coming of Jesus all the way back to the creation of the world. I mean, both of those passages begin in the beginning, right? John uses the Greek phrase enarche. The writer of Genesis uses the phrase bereshit, which means in the beginning, and it's complicated, but take, take my word for it, that there's an unusual construction in, in, in bereshit. There's, there's a definite article missing. 
It doesn't actually say in the beginning. It says in beginning. And when John begins his gospel saying in the beginning, he begins without the definite article as well. It's like he's deliberately echoing the language of Genesis to say, here's a new beginning. And what is it that's in John's prologue? What are the elements that are there that he wants us to focus on? He wants us to focus on the fact that the Word was with God. The Word was with God. And of course, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, it begins with the Spirit of God brooding over the chaos, the unformed primordial chaos. And then it shifts and says, and God said. What did God say? He spoke His Word. He spoke His Word, and so right there in the very first verses of Genesis chapter 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, because the Word was creative, because the Word that was then spoken said, let there be light, let there be sky, let there be water, let there be land, let there be vegetation, and the Word created, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And every word that was spoken resulted in the forming of creation. And so through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made, because it was the Word that effected all of those things. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. What was that first thing that the Word said at the very beginning? Let there be light. You see, John is very deliberately picking up and tracing Jesus' origins, not just back to people who were part of God's salvation and rescue plan, but actually linking Jesus back all the way to the divine, to God, to the Creator God Himself, in a bold move, daring from the beginning, to present Jesus not just as being descended from these great holy figures of old, but as being God Himself. In our faith, we often localize. We bring God down to where we are. In the same way as we, we make Christmas about the little traditions that, that we've inherited or learned in our culture that are, are so specific and usually just so full of nonsense. <laughs> John asks us to look at the bigger picture. John asks us to see the origins. There's another little origin story which I've learned to love, never really understood before. You know, when Matthew, after Herod tries to kill Jesus or, or goes hunting uh, for, for Jesus, and, and Mary and Joseph are warned in a dream to flee, and they flee to Egypt, and they stay there two years, which is how long it was until Herod the Great died. And then it says that they came back from Egypt and quotes a scripture from the Old Testament saying, out of Egypt I called my son. I hadn't really thought about it much till this year, I don't suppose, about the whole Egypt thing, and yet the power and the fulfillment. You know, the, the nation of Israel, 
became a nation in Egypt. What went to Egypt was a family. Joseph first sold to Midianite traders who ended up there with via Potiphar and all the way to Pharaoh's palace. And then because of that, Joseph brought his brothers and his father, and a family settled in Egypt, and they stayed there for several hundred years. And it was during that time that one family became a nation. The nation of Israel did not exist anywhere before it grew as a nation in Egypt. And the journey that God's people began was a journey out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land through the wilderness. It's a picture. It's a picture of God's invitation when in the chaos and the unformed waters that were hovering, that were, that, that were pre-creation, God brings forth a people and a hope and life out of chaos. God brings forth a people out of slavery in Egypt to take them on a journey of promise. And in Jesus, God comes into the world to gather a people in despair and brokenness and sin and bondage to death and decay, and He brings them out and invites them to go on a journey by faith where He will take them into a promised land. And so, if we want to think about Jesus' divinity and the universality of these stories, let's not just stop short at a baby in a manger, but let's be awed and wowed and amazed at Jesus who spoke life into being. Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The Word the Word that spoke all things into being was made flesh in order to come on a rescue mission, another rescue mission, in order to lead us to a place of fulfillment. And I'm going to hand over to David now, who's going to take us on the other half, if you like, of that journey. So, we've thought about where we've come from, about how Jesus' coming is an echo calling all the way back to Genesis and creation itself of God calling and speaking creation, and then coming into the world in order that He might, the light come into the world, lead us into a future that He has promised and is yet to be fulfilled. David. Thank you, Alistair. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me for this portion of the message to Revelation, book of Revelation, right at the very end, in case you didn't know what it was. And we're actually going to the last two chapters of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. Revelation 21 and 22. And we'll read in chapter 21 from verse 22, if that's not too confusing. The words will appear on the screen if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 21, from verse 22. This is John, the Apostle John, also speaking about the vision that was given to him. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun 
or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Amen, and we give thanks to God for this reading of his own holy and inspired word, and to his name be every praise. I wonder if you've ever been on a journey and suffered or struggled to complete it because you didn't know where you were going. Uh, I wondered if you've done that, and it was due to GPS or technology failing, or perhaps a bad navigator in your front seat. But I'm sure we've all had that experience of you end up going round and round in circles, down back roads, and you're struggling because you don't act, you've never been to the end destination before, and you don't know how to get there. And what's so helpful when we're thinking about Advent and the gospel and the message of Jesus expanding ever outward is that as God's people, we aren't actually left with any kind of guesswork as to where we're going and where this all ends up. And compared to every other world religion and every other philosophy and every other way that you can be told to live your life that is good for this world, nothing compares to the cosmic scale that Christianity gives us, especially in the Revelation of St. John. Now, there's lots of confusing details as we find the book of Revelation, and there's a lot that we can get wrapped up in and tied up in, and we thought a little about that last week. I remember an old preacher once saying to me, the simplest way to understand Revelation is with one sentence, behold your God. Behold your God. Because that's what Revelation is really all about. It's the people of God beholding God forever in His awe and in His splendor and His unmitigated glory. And that's an experience we look forward to that we don't quite have here. Now, of course, it's wrapped up in lots of symbolism and it's got, uh, I think I read over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. You see how with everything Alistair shared, it's one continuous glorious story that God is telling with what He's doing in history. But the book of Revelation is really given as an encouragement to a people who are not long after Jesus in a church, uh, deeply struggling, under the heat of persecution. And while it might sound a bit bizarre, it's, it's a pastoral letter of encouragement with a lot of uh, confusing and apocalyptic imagery for us. But if you think of that, behold your God, and you think of how it's relevant to us. We don't have the same challenges the early church had, but we live in a confusing time. We live in a time where there's a lot competing for our attention. Uh, 
and a lot of things presenting themselves at Christmas, no less, as ultimate things. And Revelation speaks to us and says, behold your God. Look at where it's all going. This is the end point. This is what's important. And so we're in chapters 21 and 22, and it speaks of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, and or the new Jerusalem. It's quite confusing. They're possibly the same thing. We don't actually have a map. It's not like we have a modern-day schematic or blueprint for this uh, new heavens and new earth. Suffice it to say, there's a few things that we can learn about it, especially as it's described in this chapter about where this is all going, about the light of God that will go on forever. So just briefly, three things we see in this little portion, light to the people of God, light to the nations, and light that undoes the curse. Light to the people of God. Well, Alistair read for us in Genesis 1 that we knew where light comes from. In the beginning was God, and God said, let there be light. There is light because God engendered it by his omnipotent power. I love that thought that Alistair had, that in the beginning, not just any kind of beginning, but God is the fountainhead and the source of end. There was no beginning before him, and that's the same for light. And so God is the source of light and indeed the source of anything and everything. He is the life-giving engine that gives rise to the world and to any kind of animated life. And light is so central to everything God communicates to us. We all need it. We know what light is as a property, as it can be studied scientifically. But light in the Bible has a bigger significance than that. Light is so often used symbolically for the pureness and the goodness of God. And actually, that's not that different because we all need light to survive and we moan the darkness and winter and Christmas can be difficult times and we love, I think we love Christmas lights because it's just such a dark and difficult time of year for a lot of people. Light is in its essence good and pure and we crave it and we need it and we're made to need it. And God so often describes himself as light and it's central to everything he's always done. He created light when he instituted the first people that he called to himself in the Old Testament, and he gave them somewhere to worship him, the temple. Light was central to what they did. A light burned outside the tabernacle all the time, and it was one of the priests' job to always make sure that that fire was lit. Light has always been central to what God is doing. And what I love about John is, is although he's looking forward, he doesn't write this in isolation. John heavily alludes to what God had already revealed through the prophets. In Isaiah chapter 60, 60, you'll recognize this language. In verse 19, it says, the sun will be no more. And this is Isaiah prophesying about what he also saw as the end goal, the end times of all the created order. The sun will be no more your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. You see, the prophets, John all who God revealed his truth to had this end times picture of eventually God's presence and God's goodness is so going to fill this created order that there will be room for nothing else. And so importantly, this is the place where God wants to dwell with his people forever. And so light is being used figuratively because Christ is going to make a place where he will be with his people forever. And that's at the center of it. You know, you can ask, and sometimes people get caught up in speculation, why did God create the world? Why did he make us uh, with free will? Why are we even, why is there something rather than nothing? And you know, I think 
without oversimplifying it, Revelation gives us an answer to that. In the portion that we read, the beautiful picture of Jesus with his people, he tells us why he made everything. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. God, in his infinite glory and wisdom and sovereignty, decided and willed to make a people who he would call his own, who he would be with forever in purity and in pure, unfiltered light and the glory of God. And that seems to be it. That seems to be everything, all of history, traveling towards that. This people are going to see God and live with God face to face. You know, everything in the history of God's people on earth, it's been mediated. The tabernacle, Mount Sinai, Moses was a mediator. Jesus coming, he was, the hymn says it, veiled in human flesh. He took on our likeness. But then there's going to be, we are going to be washed by Jesus, totally pure, spotless, and clean. And so we don't need that level of mediation anymore. If we were to behold God in his light right now, it would blitz us. It would be too much. But that's the beauty of where all this is headed, is that the whole earth that's going to be cleansed and God's people are going to see Jesus face to face. And you know, God doesn't waste anything. Sometimes people ask, what was the point in the Old Testament priesthood and the covenants and the sacrifices and all that stuff that we just don't do anymore and we don't worry about anymore? Well, it's not completely meaningless because look, it says that we are going to reign with him forever and ever and we will have his name on our foreheads. The priest was an important picture of what we'll do forever, serving God, working to God's glory. The priest had a mark on his forehead to show that he was set apart for God's service. All of us who have been called, who Jesus has worked in our hearts to convict us of sin and embrace his death on the cross for our forgiveness, that was a huge part of what God was doing and is doing, and in some ways is the centerpiece of all human history and all God's revelation, but that's not the end. Far from it. The whole point of that was to get you and me to a place where we live and serve God forever with work to do to his glory in the new heavens and the new earth where all darkness is banished. So we, light is given for God's people to enjoy the light of God forever. Well, then what are the cosmic implications of this for our world? Well, they're massive because the whole point is that Jesus came as a baby and he was the light of the world. And then his gospel and the light that he gives expands to the nations. And you know, that just keeps continuing, continuing. We thought last week it went to uh, wise men who were out with the bounds of traditional uh, Jewish law keepers and observers. And now the gospel is in goodness knows how many languages and all, all over the world. And the Old Testament speaks of a day where the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And that's just not a nice poetic image. That is absolutely where God is taking it. John is again recalling the words in uh, Isaiah where he says, Nations in chapter 60 verse 3 will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Look how similar John's language is because he's talking about the leaves of the tree of life and the new creation are for the healing of the nations without getting overly complicated about this, this is God's unitary purpose. He doesn't just love people. God saw everything that he had made in creation and saw that it was good. And sometimes 
there are some sects of Christianity that have a tendency to be like all we have to do is get through this world and we're going to heaven and we're going to live with God in a cloud forever. And actually that's a very narrow version of Christianity and it's actually not a biblical version of Christianity. God loves us and the people he has redeemed by his blood to live with him forever, but he also loves the creation that he made for them to dwell in and that he made so that he might dwell with them. God's dwelling is in heaven right now, but see the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. And the temple was a microcosm of what God was going to do cosmically. God's plan was always that everything that he had made, the heavens and the earth, would be unmitigatingly filled with his glory and with his purity and with his goodness. And that's the point of this. After God comes in the final judgment, everything will be put under his feet. And so we have it here. Every form of deceit, every form of darkness, every form of malice will be purged and without being too exclusive about it, but we have to be because it's where the Bible takes us, the only people left are going to be those God has cleansed and purified. And when you and I die in Jesus, we'll be glorified. All the sin and the darkness and the sickness will be gone. And those people whom God has called and redeemed will be all... So think about it, all the nations, that's all that's left. And Revelation 7 tells us that God will call a people from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. God loves the diversity and the spread of cultures that he has made and he has ordained, and he will call his own people from all of these. And so they will repopulate the new creation. And so the nations will be full of his light and Jesus will be at the head of it. And you know, I think John mentions the nations because this is the opposite of the way we see nationhood by under the curse. You think of just now, how many different news stories you can consider where there's war, there's strife, there's the human ego and pride driving people to compete, to be fearful, to scramble over resources. You need a vision? Just think of what that'll be like with all these nations glorifying King Jesus. That's where we're headed. He came to be light to the nations. And lastly, just when we think about the curse on a personal level, in verse 27, we have this imagery that everything deceitful and bad will be driven out. And what does that mean? Well, there'll also be everything from the curse as we understood it from the point of the law. Everything cursed is driven out. That's the word that he uses in the Greek, katathema. And the, old, uh, the Jewish people or certain people with a Jewish background who would have been the original audience would have understood this as, well, to be cursed was to be unable to keep the law of God. And that's where everybody finds themselves. That's where we all are. That's where um, Genesis 3 starts with a curse. Because you've disobeyed, this has happened. Uh, There's relational strife between the man and the woman. There's strife with the creation because it's cursed now and it's difficult to get things out of the ground and it costs weight. And that's the essence of the curse. And all that in in chapter 2, verse 3 will be done away with. And look at the Edenic imagery. There'll be a tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Numbers are important. 12 is perfection. 12 is God's purposes. Eden is going to be reversed and it's going to be done right. You know, I think God gives us a picture of an eventual city because that's what the garden was meant to become. You remember, he gave Adam and Eve the command to steward, to cultivate, to expand the territory, to be fruitful and multiply. And if they had not sinned, then there's 
um, almost certain hope that they would have continued to subdue more and more of the creation in this Edenic paradise and would have become a city. That seems to be what we like to do as human beings. We seem to be built to create urban centers, although we do a lot of it to the God of Mammon right now rather than God. But all of that will be undone and this city will be purified and that curse, the strife that we experience with each other will be reversed, disease and corruption will be reversed. And so this Advent, let's not just think of the baby in a manger and how great that is. Let's not stop there. Let's think of where it's all headed. And you and I, we all have things that we're looking to for the curse to be reversed. Maybe it's our own sicknesses and ill health we've struggled with over the years. Maybe it's relationships that we can't seem to mend, regardless of how hard we try. And maybe it's wounds that just won't be healed, wherever we may have got them from. What a vision, what a hope we're giving. That this earth that we enjoy so much of its goodness from, we will live in, but it won't be cursed. I heard a story once of a mother who cared for a severely disabled child. And this child needed all kinds of contraptions and machinery just for daily life, just to keep him going. And she once got the opportunity to take him up to the Colorado ski slopes, uh, slopes, and there were specialists who were able to take children um, with severe handicaps and take them up and get them to see the grandeur of the mountains. And she looked as her son was heading up, and she saw just a line of wheelchairs. And she just said it was the most amazing picture for her of what the new creation will be like. We all have what is the equivalent of a line of wheelchairs, what we're looking forward to. And Jesus gives us that hope, and it will be glorious because ultimately, first things, anything that is good, anything that is pure, anything that is lovely, as the Apostle Paul tells us, we're to think of such things because God is the source of all those things. And everything that we struggle with, any badness, any difficulty, it's because of sin, sometimes our own, sometimes our others, but it's because of the darkness of the curse. And the beauty and the hope is that we will live beholding the glory of God and his light forever and ever. May God bless this word to us. I'm going to hand back over to Alistair to close the service. Oh, we'll just pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the hope that you give us in Advent. And we thank you, Lord, that it is not a hope relegated to an event 2,000 years ago, but it is a permanent hope, an enduring hope, a hope that will go on for the ages. Would you help us today, O Lord, partake in that hope if we have not before, by Christ's blood and his sacrifice, to trust in him for the washing away of sin and wrongdoing? Would you help us now in the rest of our time to glorify you, to show your light to others, and to give you thanks for all you have given us. In Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Uh, We're going to finish by worshiping, so I hand over to Brian now. Let's stand again.